Hi, I'm Zakia Elias, and this is Representation Matters, a conversation around equality, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace podcast series by The Equal Group, bringing you stories, insights, and learnings around optimizing equality, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace. Welcome to today's episode where I'm joined by Alan Reed, an experienced equality, diversity, and inclusion professional who is currently working as an EDI consultant here at The Equal Group. Alan has a wealth of experience in different roles and fields, most recently coming from the rail industry, where they worked as a signal maintenance operative and a diversity and inclusion officer. Alan is part of the LGBTQ plus movement and queer community. They have a strong belief that intersectional and empathetic EDI is the way forward. As well as being the membership lead for the Albert Alliance in Scotland, Alan has also presented on a number of topics for various groups, including the Buy Umbrella for Scottish Power and the Queer Community for Network Rail. We had a very interesting conversation, which began with me asking, who is Alan Reid? Thanks, Akia. Um, so I had to think about what does this actually mean? Like, how do we define ourselves? Um, and I was wondering, like, is it your job, your lived experience, hobbies, political leaning? Um, but I suppose the first thing that sort of came to my head was what am I passionate about? Um, so I'm passionate about improving our world and society. And I believe that everything, everyone should have the equality of opportunity and that we should strive to leave things better than we found them. Brilliant. And I know that it is a very difficult question. I think that most guests that we've had on the show would definitely agree on that too, um, because it is framed in such an open-ended way. Uh, it kind of makes it hard to pinpoint what you want to focus on and talk about. Um, so right then, let's continue with the challenging questions. So if I were to ask you then, Alan, to describe yourself in two or three words, what would those two or three words be? Um, so three words, uh, passionate, empathetic and considerate. Definitely. And, you know, the reason why I wanted to begin with those quite introspective questions is because self-reflection is a very hard thing to do, isn't it? But I think it's also a very useful way to gain insight into a person's character, Um, you know, because, of course, we all have had different lived experiences that really shape us um, and impact us. So I guess this kind of leads me to, you know, ask you about your experiences and your journey so far, Alan. You are currently an EDI consultant here at The Equal Group. But how did you end up getting to this stage in your career? So... I could maybe go back to the start of my career journey, uh, but I think that would take quite a while. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you the highlights. Um, I've always sort of had a passion for making things equitable, fairness. Throughout my uh, job history, since I was in high school, uh, where I w- worked weekends as a youth coordinator, and then when I was in the music industry, p- putting on gigs, uh, I was in, working in Dundee, and I was known for being like the fairest gig promoter. Um, a lot of people were actually really upset when I decided to leave Dundee and then subsequently leave the music industry but after I left the music industry I sort of was looking for something else for a career uh, and I found an apprenticeship at Network Rail I thought career for life guaranteed a, a, a pension scheme and all that uh, so I thought it's a safe bet and then through that I sort of stumbled into DNI. Uh, through some constructive anger um, I wasn't very happy with the lack of diversity I was seeing around me um, especially when NetRail's got extensive policies um, for diversity and inclusion I just wasn't seeing them materialise 
in actual actions. So I sent what I consider to be quite an angry email um, to the relevant people in the company and the Diversity and Inclusion Manager for Scotland, uh, not real Scotland, uh, Nizi Manwar chose to harness and tap into my passion for fairness and eventually brought me on as a DNI officer uh, to work alongside him. Unfortunately, because the main network rail uh, was set up at the time, um, and the fact that I come through the apprenticeship program and everything that entailed meant that the team couldn't keep me in that position for uh, mm. long term. But I decided that this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a difference to people. I didn't feel like I was doing that as a signal maintenance operative. So I started educating myself. Um, started looking for a position that would allow me to continue this journey. Cue uh, our chair, David Thorne, uh, who I assume liked my tenacity when I directly messaged him on LinkedIn to ask him to if the job uh, post was still available. It, I'd seen it advertised uh, on Indeed, and I think I was maybe like just a little bit slow in uh, getting onto it. I'd seen it in the morning, and I couldn't apply, so I had to wait, and it was later that afternoon I went on. Every time I got there, uh, it had been taken down. So David uh, very graciously put it back up and let me apply. And then I apparently impressed uh, CEO Mac and operations manager Kate. And now I'm here. And for me, it's certainly been the best job I've ever made. It's definitely my favourite place to work so far. Mac will definitely be pleased to hear that. Um, Clearly, your enthusiasm definitely paid off. And so it's safe to say, I'd say that you kind of fell into this kind of work and, you know, you dabbled into the music industry and are consulting. But um, when you mentioned that you're working for Network Rail, you said that you saw some really serious EDI issues going on. You know, are you happy to go into a bit more detail on what you were seeing and you felt that needed to be addressed in that industry? Yeah, so Network Rail is huge um, and it's split into uh, different regions. Um, so you've got Scotland, Northwest, Northeast, London, yeah, Southwest, Southeast. So there's like six regions, but then there's one central uh, DNI team, and they're doing a lot of really good work, producing really good quality, high quality content um, to try and bring Network Real forward. The problem is that that's not permeating through the organisation. It's not really leaving the office. And even when it's it's starting to get to some offices as well. So then we consider there's a staff of, I want to say, 40,000 across uh, the UK. And Scotland, I think it's 4,300, with most of them being frontline staff, being people who actually work on the rail. And it's not getting to those staff. Those staff aren't hearing about it. They're not engaging in it. They're not being engaged with it. Um, those problems of diversity and inclusion that they're trying to solve aren't getting addressed. I worked in a depot where there was maybe between 70 and 80 people working on the front line. And of those 70 to 80 people, only three of them were women. In that depot, uh, there's only two people that I knew of that were LGBT, Q+, uh, me being one of them. And I rarely saw anyone of colour. In fact, the only person I saw regular of colour was the cleaner. Add to that, so where I live in North Lanarkshire, it's not a huge ethnically diverse place. 
there are pockets of ethnic diversity. We have we've got the mosque in New Stevenson, um, which is about two or three miles from here. Um, so they're in the catchment area for jobs for the network rail and where I worked. And we do have a small black population. Uh, I'm not sure on the numbers and the percentages of the population, but I know it exists. Yeah. However, moving away from ethnicity and just looking at diversity in general for nationality, North Lancashire's got a really big Eastern European population. There's a lot of Polish people. Um, there's a Lithuanian club through in the next town over, but they're not represented within the people that I worked with. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was like, well, why not? Why aren't we reaching out to those people, that community? Why can't, why aren't they coming to work here? This is supposed to be a really great career. It's a career for life. Um, there's loads of benefits. Uh, why aren't they wanting to work for Network Rail? Um, and historically, I know Network Rail seen as a white men's club. It's been, his, certainly in Scotland, has been historically white, cis, straight men, most of them being from sort of working class backgrounds. So there's a lack of that diversity and the diversity of thought within the organisation. So I saw that what they were doing at head office just wasn't getting to the front line. And I was like, well, that's not good enough. What's good, What's happening with that? So I sent that email. Um, and at the time when I sent it, when I wrote the email, I didn't actually know Nazim existed. I knew we had a central DNI team. I just didn't know we had a DNI representative in Scotland. And on the day I came in, so when I wrote it, I had uh, a couple of people read it before I sent it. Um, so I had my partner read it and I had my friend who works uh, for Network Rail but works in Wales read it um, and then I came in on the day I was going to send it and I had a an email from the communications team on behalf of Nazim um, making everyone aware that he was a new DNI manager yeah. uh, I think he'd been officially the DNI manager for a couple of months by that point but this was him going public with it and sort of sharing the plan uh, going forward so that meant I could send it directly to him instead and that's led to a really positive relationship in me and Azim. Um I've left Network Rail but I still stay in regular contact with him uh, and I still consider him to be my primary mentor. Oh, I, think that's, I think that's such a you know that step that you took to kind of write that email um, the fact that you saw there's a lack of representation, lack of diversity, and then took initiative to, you could say, like instigate that, that like initial, the initial steps for that change. Um, I think that was really brilliant. And, um, and so, you know, we've dabbled a bit into your professional journey, but I also want to talk a bit about your personal journey too, Alan. You did mention that you were one of the very few people at Network Rail who are part of the LGBTQ plus movement and queer community. Um, and this month is actually Pride Month, which for listeners who may not be aware of, it's a month that is dedicated to celebrating the LGBTQ plus communities all around the world. So I think I should start off by asking you, what does Pride mean to you, Alan? Um, so Pride for me is a reminder that people from this uh, community, this movement, haven't always had the freedom to express themselves safely in the UK. Uh, and there's still a huge struggle around the world. Um, we have laws in the UK that are supposed to protect us, but there's still vocal bigotry towards LGBTQ and queer communities. Um, and then around the world, 77 countries still um, have laws against uh, same-sex relations with men 
and 45 of them have laws against same-sex relations with women. And the severity of punishment differs from country to country. An interesting thing about those countries is, I would double-check this, um, but I'm 99% sure that all of them were at one point colonised by European um, power. And those laws are held over from that colonisation. Having pride, it shows young people that they can be who they are. Uh, There are spaces where they will be welcome to express their full identity and explore that identity. Uh, And coming back to Network Rail, whilst I was one of the few uh, LGBTQ plus people, certainly openly LGBTQ plus people in my depot and in Scotland, the wider Scotland, Network Rail does have its own employee resource group, Archway, um, which is for all railway staff, uh, not just Network Rail. Uh, it's run by a good friend, Shane Andrews, uh, and they're doing really good work. They just need a bit more support in Scotland, I think. Right. And I think it is important to ask that question because, um, you know, we are all very unique individuals. And so I do understand that pride can mean something very different to everyone, depending on their own lived experiences. Um, and so if you are comfortable sharing, Alan, I'm curious to know what, what was your experience uh, like exploring your gender identity and sexuality growing up? Yeah, um, so I've actually not been out for very long. I didn't come out as pansexual until I was 26 or 27. And it was only just the start of this year that I decided to explore my gender identity and started using the term non-binary uh, in pronouns they then. So I've now embarked on a journey that will hopefully give me a better answer to your first question. Uh, I'll be able to actually answer that with knowing who I fully am. But growing up, I didn't really feel like I had the space to question. I was the middle child uh, with two uh, brothers, older and younger. Um, And by the time I started to have thoughts about my gender and sexuality, uh, I was already in high school uh, where it was just a no-go my mum was a teacher in the town that I grew up in. I was also a nerdy kid, so I got bullied quite a bit. And adding to that just seemed like a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so I chose to box them up a little bit. So gender was definitely boxed up that I wasn't going to question that. Um, sexuality was a bit harder to box up for me, but I wasn't prepared to be open about it. Um, I chose so I chose not to explore or be open about it because I had no frame of reference for how welcome it would be in my hometown and within my family. Um, I had no evidence for how welcome it would be. Like there was no uh, openly gay people within my immediate vicinity, and it wasn't until I started to spend time outside of my hometown that I started to see a lot more gay people. So I didn't have that frame of reference for how it was going to um, be welcomed. And I was fairly certain I wasn't gay, but I was also fairly certain I wasn't straight. So I was sitting there somewhere in the middle. And then I remember at some point reading in the metro on the train that sexuality, sexual fluidity was not a thing amongst men um, or males. uh, And only females could be sexually fluid. That idea that um, men had to be uh, either straight or gay they mm. couldn't be in between yeah. whereas women's sexuality was very much able to move um within that and my understanding is certainly that's been disproven and women can be as fixed as men uh, as straight or gay 
but you know both men, men and women or male female uh, sexes can be very fluid as well uh, and it's unique to the person but that meant I didn't want to question and I forced myself into that box of straight white cis male which it worked it allowed me to explore other aspects of, of me like my interests uh, outside of that um, it allowed me to get through university but it did take its toll repressing part of your identity is not healthy and it led to me having some mental health issues so about a year before I started I came out as pansexual I started to um, go through quite intense counselling took my first course in CBT um, and I started to because of what the counselling was asking me to look at I started to look more in depth at who I was and I started to unbox a lot of things and I remember like describing it to my partner at the time almost as if I was unlocking doors in a hallway mm. and all this stuff was just piling out like that you know that idea that we tidy stuff away and you squash it behind a locked door and you leave it yeah and then, but eventually well, it's all gonna come out yeah yeah it felt like that it felt like I was unlocking doors and just things were piling out and I was starting to understand more about who I was and once you unlocked that door you couldn't just put it back in you couldn't mm. just like uh, shut back in the closet um so I forced myself to reckon with a lot of these parts of my identity uh, I decided to stop unlocking doors for a while um but I thought I can't just let everything spill out and try and deal with it all in one go I have to take a measured approach and make sure that I'm not overloading myself uh so it's taken me a, a while from that uh, in 2016-17 when I started to identify uh, as pansexual to now and I've opened more and more doors and I've learned more and more things about myself as I've went forward and that sort of slow approach and that's why it's taken to this year to identify as non-binary it took until just the end of last year for me to like uh, start chasing my doctor for a diagnosis for ADHD all those things went part and parcel because they're all things that I squashed down uh, so I could fit into this box that um, is a so it's a social yeah, construct. I mean, I'm going to say society constructed it for me. I constructed it based on my perception of society, mm-hmm. but it did. I squashed myself into that box. No, I, no, I definitely agree. I mean, because the idea of that sexual fluidity is just something that only women experience. It's kind of based on this social construction that men need to uphold. You know, this very masculine gender role, and part of that masculinity is apparently heterosexuality. And you also mentioned about, you know, kind of repressing your feelings and, you know, not really exploring your your identity that much. But obviously that did have a huge toll on your mental health. And I was just thinking that you obviously you had the opportunity, you're lucky that you, you know, got some counselling and you had like a partner to speak to. But I was just wondering for, for people perhaps who are listening who, you know, are struggling to, you know, speak out to somebody or have that kind of support. Are there any resources or any kind of like advice that you would give them to help them through this kind of journey? Yeah, so in, certainly in the UK, most large cities uh, or even large towns uh, will have some sort of LGBT uh, resource uh, group, whether it's provided by the council, whether it's provided by a local charity, there'll be something there that we can go and get advice and help from. Um, feeling that young people are, so certainly I'm part of the millennial generation, I grew up with uh, MSN MySpace. The, the younger generation are more online than we ever were. 
Uh, and with that comes a lot of online support. There's loads of Discord servers where people talk about this stuff. I think you do have to be careful. There's going to be Discord servers which uh, purport to be LGBTQ plus friendly, but they're not. So those Discord servers, that, um, the ones that are LGBTQ plus friendly and the aimed at adults will be very honest about what they're doing, or they sh- most of them are very honest about what they're doing. So if you're not an adult uh, and you're looking for LGBTQ plus support, move on from that one because it won't be mm-hmm. uh, appropriate uh, and it might be the next step in your journey for when you're 18 plus. Um, but disc- yeah, Discord, uh, look online for any local clubs, local services. Find out when your local pride is. So this is Pride Month in June, uh, so held in June because of the Stonewall riot in 1969. But Pride has to get planning permission from the local council. So a lot of Prides are held at different times of the year. There's also various uh, celebrations for different aspects of Pride. So sometimes uh, Black Pride, which is for Black LGBTQ plus people, is quite often held in October, uh, which is the UK's Black History Month. But There'll be Trans Pride is held, and certainly in Glasgow, they're Trans Pride in sort of April time. Um, And all Prides that happen June, May, June, July, August. Just find out when they are. See if you can contact the organisation that runs it, and they'll be able to point you in the direction of something in your local area uh, if you're struggling to find it yourself. Thank you for that advice. And I think those recommendations um, are very useful. And so, you know, I do want to quickly touch on something that you did mention. I was just thinking about, so you said that you came out quite late in your life. So, you know, as a result of that in your professional life, then did you face any you know, difficulties or any challenges, discrimination um, because of your sexual orientation or gender identity? Um, I have faced some bigotry. Like the real industry is a predominantly straight uh, white cis male industry certainly in Scotland and I wasn't fully out in a lot of places I work but when you're as vocal as I am it's not always easy to keep that hidden uh, and I remember challenging someone on something they said and that led to the revelation that I was uh, pansexual and that led to a lot of issues within that department and was part of the reason why I chose to leave that department. Um, in terms of getting work it's never been a hindrance and beyond that, it's, for me, it's never been a hindrance. But I do think that's because I came out later in life. I wasn't very open about it. I'm also very aware of how I present. I look like this. I'm white, male, masculine presenting, bald, beard, average height, average build, uh, wearing a T-shirt. I very much do fit in to society's expectations. The big part of that is because that's part of that box that I constructed for myself and this is still what I'm comfortable wearing. I am looking, exploring that, but in terms of work, it's never really affected me. But I know that's me being very lucky. I've met people who have hidden who they are to get a job. I've met people who feel that they they got rejected from a job because of their open sexuality. So it comes into the idea of um, gender, sexuality and sex. and how that all combines. So there's two parts of, people argue there's four parts of gender. So there's gender identity, gender expression, uh, your biological sex and your sexuality. And I would argue that those last two aren't part of your gender, they're just Mm. a different part of your identity. Um, But the first two really are a big part of your gender. So one is your internal gender identity, how you feel about yourself, and the other is how 
you choose to express yourself. Some people would find it difficult to separate the two. And then someone like me, I think possibly for me, because I spent so much time ignoring one part of it means that I, it's now separated. So my gender identity versus my gender expression are quite different. Whereas other people, maybe their gender identity and their sexuality influence their gender expression. And that means that they're very... So while they're so upfront about it, they they, they they don't hide it or they can't hide it. Uh, And that means that they can face that discrimination from the outset. As soon as they meet people, it starts... Whereas people maybe have to spend a bit of time getting to know me before they find that side of things out. Yeah. And I think, you know, this just this whole topic of, you know, gender identity um, in the workplace is something that's definitely grown in recent years. And I think there is a greater recognition of the, you know, spectrum of gender identities that do exist. Um, you know, I'm aware that, you know, some members of the LGBTQ plus and queer community like to use multiple terms to describe their identity, whereas others um, prefer to be more vague. And, you know, some people just prefer no labels at all. And so, you know, linked to this, I'm curious to know, Alan, what are your thoughts on the kind of expanding terminology? And do you think that it is helpful or is it limiting to the people within the community? Um, so I, I really think it's about how we use those labels. Like labels can be really useful to the individual uh, as a way to explore and understand their own identity. But if you were to then take a label and apply it to someone else, you've then limited their experience. You've put them in a box uh, rather than them constructing their own identity. The other thing with what we see certainly within the queer community um, is that the labels you apply to yourself can be few or many and they can be ever-changing, meaning that the box is never permanent, always changing uh, and how solid, uh, how large, how permanent that box is, is very up to the individual. Like For me, the amount of labels out there just let me know that other people have had those questions. Other people have thought about that part of their identity, thought about what is my sexuality, what is my gender, um, what is this that I'm experiencing? And they've had to sit and try and describe it, or they felt that they had to describe it. And in describing it, they've found other people who have also had that. And then as a community, they've assigned an appropriate term. So bisexuality, what is traditionally thought of as attracted to two genders, more in the community, it's accepted that bisexuality just means more than one gender, attracted to more than one gender. Whereas within the bi umbrella, there's this idea of pansexuality, which is attracted to all genders, so pan meaning all from Greek. And sometimes that's termed as gender blind. So people who identify as pansexual often say that they, the gender doesn't play a part in their attraction. They're just attracted to the person and not the gender. Whereas omnisexual is also all genders, but that's more a term of the, the gender does play a part in their attraction. So they might, they might be aware of their level of attraction to different genders. So they might have almost a hierarchy. How that plays out to them is like unique to them. Um, and what that hierarchy might be is very up to them. Some of them might, might have a hierarchy and some of them might not. But having those labels just lets you know that there's other people who have had those thoughts and that allows you to feel that you're not alone and therefore feel more comfortable exploring that. 
It's also, I think, about understanding and accepting that, um, as I said, that whilst a person might use a particular label, their identity and how they use that label or collection of labels and how that applies to them is very unique. It's their identity. I have a number of friends who identify as binary pansexual people, but what that means to them is different from what it means to me and how we like, go forward with that. Yeah, so it's really about you know respecting essentially just people's preferences and not being afraid to, you know, if the if a situation allows, ask, how would you like me to address you, etc. Yeah, it's same uh, as asking uh, about someone's cultural heritage. So Zakia Elias is not a typically British name, but if I came up to you and asked where are you from, you might respond with whatever um, town city you're in, uh, or just England or Britain. If I then dig into that and ask like oh, but where are you really from or, and stuff like that. That's me, uh, that's me being sort of invasive and assuming that because you're not yeah. of traditional British origins or uh, whatever, that you don't belong here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a similar idea when you sort of refuse to refer to people's, um, people by their chosen identity or saying that their identity is wrong, that that's not valid that they don't or they don't belong in the space that they're in and for me having that label just allows me to really um, understand who I am going forward now I've chosen two uh, two of those labels but whereas I think I'm like to sit with pansexual I might shed that non-binary at some point because I'm still exploring that I'm still very much developing what that means to me and try to understand where that fits so if I, at some point in the future, turned around and said, right, I'm reverting back to he, him pronouns, whilst I might expect the people who have got used to using they, them with me might take a little while to switch again, I would expect people to try and use he, him pronouns at that point, just as I expect them to use they, them, try to use they, them pronouns at this point. And so I guess a lot of this, you know, just understanding it is all about having these open conversations like we are having, you know, right now, um, yeah. because especially in, in regards to like the expanding terminology, there is this fear, I think, you know, particularly in the workplace about, you know, just getting it wrong. But it is important, like you said, that we can learn. It's a learning process. It's OK to make a mistake as long as there's that willingness to, you know, correct yourself and educate yourself more. Um I think it was three weeks back, you gave her a really insightful presentation um, during one of our group meetings uh, covering the expanding terminology. And, you know, I do admit that before the presentation, I had very limited knowledge um, on what is meant by queer. And I don't know, you correct me if I am wrong, Alan, but um, I do feel like there still is this this confusion um, surrounding the word queer. And I guess that has got to do with its historical significance. So um, I did think that it would be a good opportunity today if you could explain in a bit more detail um, what is meant by queer as an umbrella term. I, I know you mentioned a few of the terms in the previous answer, but just explaining what, it, what that essentially means for audiences. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with what queer is to the community. So queer is a catch-all term uh, for anyone who doesn't identify as uh, either cisgender or heterosexual. So if, if you're any part of the LGBTQ plus community, you would probably be, uh, you'd be very welcome in the queer community. I'm welcome to use the term queer. It allows people to identify very vaguely uh, and therefore then explore what their identity is within that without having to then pick a label uh, and apply that to them. They can just, instead of having to assign labels to themselves when they're not sure what labels work, they can say, I'm queer 
also in a situation where they don't feel that they want to be very specific with the group they're in. They don't feel uh, very confident with it. Uh, and this includes in LGBTQ plus uh, safe spaces. People maybe don't know how safe it is to identify as part of the wider acronym um, in that space, uh, because there is bigotry within the LGBTQ plus um, movement. Uh, unfortunately, there's bigotry in every movement, in pockets of the movement anyway. So it allows people that to be very vague with it and explore what it means before they start applying labels to themselves. It also allows a safer space. So going into the history of how it's used, my understanding of the world is it's actually its roots are in Scotland. Works for me, but it mean it was used to mean anything that wasn't quite normal. Someone who was a bit, I remember reading it as off kilter. So used to describe that painting's hanging at a queer angle. That lad's off he queers, meaning that he's not quite normal. He's not. He doesn't really fit in here. Then in the 19th century in London, there was a men's club where the men of the club, who were all homosexual men, referred to themselves as queers. And it became quite a popular terminology to use for them because at the time it wasn't so closely associated with homosexuality um, and was a way to disguise who they were because people just thought it was a quirky club men and then unfortunately once they got discovered and the club was shut down queer we started to get used to slur particularly in the early 20th century against the gay community and it remained a slur right through into the 21st century i i remember in my teenage years hearing the word queer being used to slur against people i knew who were openly gay but the term used for the community dates back to sort of the late 80s um, in New York with the activist group ACT UP at the height of the AIDS epidemic. A few members of ACT UP splintered off and started a sister organisation called Queer Nation that was in order to create a safe space for queer people within the community, particularly aimed at the the Black, Latin, gay community, which was a bit more open, particularly to people um, from transgender backgrounds. From then, it sort of spread around, the idea of the queer community spread around the world. And people from the LGBTQ plus community or people who maybe felt at some point oppressed by the LGBTQ plus community have become part of the queer community and started to use that moniker. It's particularly popular amongst the younger generations where they don't have that living memory of it being used against them. Um, I still know a lot of older uh, people. I say older people, some aren't even that old, but I've met people, say, in their early 40s who feel very uncomfortable with that word um, because of the living memory for them. Part of the reason of its increasing popularity is the history of the LGBTQ+. So the gay rights movement's been around for a long time, it really started to gain traction in, after the Stonewall riot in 1969. And if you know much about the Stonewall Inn in New York, at the time it was for drag queens or queer people of colour because they weren't very often accepted in other gay bars in the city, which were very much aimed at gay white men. After the Stonewall riot the following year they had a the first pride march in new york which was welcoming to everyone but very soon after the movement became sort of became exclusionary and started to exclude uh, particularly trans uh, at the time transvestites which was what they identified as at the time uh, people like Sylvia rivera and marsha p johnson they were excluded uh, it became very much a white focus 
I was looking at white gay people with the misogynistic twist in which it favoured uh, white gay men or white gay women. Over time, it, be- it became a bit more inclusive and it started to break that down. It became the LGB community and then eventually the LGBTQ, sorry, LGBT uh, community and the Q and the plus and the full acronym now is LGBTQQIAAP+. Uh, or if you're on TikTok, the Alphabet Mafia, <laughs> which I have much prefer, it's easier and quicker to say, but the community has expanded, but it still gets shortened to LGBT or LGBT+. It's very rare you see the full acronym, and if you're not including one of those first four letters, it's very easy to start to feel excluded by it. Mm-hmm. So straight away in those first four letters, it doesn't include uh, asexual people. Um I would, I would argue that pan people are probably included under the bisexual umbrella, same with omni, poly, etc. But it's very easy to feel excluded. Add to that, that there has been exclusionary practices within the LGBTQ plus community, particularly the LGB Alliance um, is an organisation who are very much against trans rights. They are still very active today and they're very vocal and almost insidious with their practices. Uh, and they don't really, they try and get support from politicians without really excluding their entire agenda. So there's that. Uh, then there's issues with um, being almost bi-exclusionary. Uh, there's been records of people being at Pride events and people from the game community uh, questioning their bisexuality and saying, oh, you've just not decided yet, or you're just confused, or oh, your boyfriend just thinks he, he, he likes women. Uh, or your girlfriend just thinks mm-hmm. she likes men. Um, and that's even within the LGBTQ plus community. So with all that history and with those events, people have just felt that the queer community offers a safer space and a new way forward for people to self-identify without that history of uh, oppression. LGBTQ plus has also been accused of assimilation and forcing people to fit into those rigid definitions and those boxes whereas queer is very much about the liberation of people and allowing people to be who they are rather than fit a predetermined definition. Yeah, and you know, I really appreciate you giving that historical recap um, of the word queer. Uh, I think it's very useful to helping give audiences just a bit of a background knowledge um, on the term. Uh, and you also mentioned a really great point about um, assimilation and integration. And it made me think um, just that, you know, with many large communities or even movements that we've seen throughout history, um, internal tensions, unfortunately, do tend to arise just because of, you know, conflicting approaches or beliefs. Um, So, yeah, I thought that was a very interesting uh, point that you made. And you also mentioned that having these open conversations and just, you know, dedicating time for employees to to really understand the expanding terminology um, are both really good ways to start helping create uh, an inclusive workplace culture. But, you know, do you think that there are any other strategies uh, that organisations can perhaps follow to help create an even more safe and inclusive work environment for LGBTQ plus individuals? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's steps that I think can be taken. First, making a commitment. So whether that's developing a, building into your diversity and inclusion strategy or even developing a diversity and inclusion strategy if you don't already have one. Second, uh, raising awareness. Um, so whether that's having educating your people or running events, particularly during Pride Month, um, looking for the different uh, events throughout the year, 
So June is Pride Month. There's lots of stuff going on. I've forgotten the dates, but September, October is Biovisibility. So Bioawareness Week. Uh, Pansexual uh, Visibility Day is 24th of May. There's loads of events throughout the year. So you can raise awareness by either having an event yourself or advertising an external event, or if you really want to get in depth, running educational events for your staff uh, directly. Uh, third step, I think it's a big one, larger organisations should seek to build an employee resource group for LGBTQ staff, so it's a, net, a staff network. Smaller companies could maybe look to form a sector-wide uh, resource group, but that should be very much, it should be led by LGBTQ plus people, um, whilst being welcoming to everyone. Fourth, create a safe space for staff to share experience. So whether that's like them having a space where they know that everyone in that space is part of the community, so they can talk openly about what they've experienced, particularly at work. And then that can be anonymously fed back to the company to uh, create improvements. Fifth, uh, show support, have an open dialogue, discuss what you're doing to make everyone feel they belong. That's not just LGBTQ plus stuff. That's I was for every demographic. Um, and make sure that's all year round, not just in the relevant months. So not just for Pride Month, uh, not just for Black History Month, not just for Women's History Month, like all year round. Yeah. And support and promote Pride uh, when it's on, but not just for good PR. If I see a company at Pride and I'm aware of uh, issues in their company, that rubs me up the wrong way. I'm, I'm quite annoyed with that. If you're not doing these first five steps at your company, I don't think you should be at Pride. Uh, certainly like um, four of them I think if you're not doing the third one because you're quite a small company you haven't found that network to do it with I'll forgive you but if you're a large company of 500 or more staff um, I think you should at least be thinking about developing it Um, even if it's like one network for uh, minority groups Mm -hmm. uh, and it has an LGBTQ plus focus but yeah do those first five steps and then be at Pride Mm-hmm, exactly. And so I suppose, you know, all these steps really feed into what it means to be an ally to the LGBTQ plus and queer community. Um, and as you said, these things should not be just done during Pride Month, uh, during June, but in fact, all year round. Um, right then, Alan, uh, our time, uh, it's flown by. But, you know, before we come to a close, I do have a final question for you, which, which does relate to the idea of allyship. Um, you know, are there any exciting changes that you've seen in regards to support for the LGBTQ plus community? And is there anything you hope to see more of in the future? So in my lifetime, there's been huge changes. Um, three of the four countries in the United Kingdom have legalised same-sex marriage. Um, Northern Ireland uh, have voted to pass it by a slim margin, but unfortunately their main party uh, vetoed it. Uh, so hopefully we'll see that change coming years. Um, there's been growing support, things have changed. There's loads of charities out there now doing a lot. There's more awareness and understanding uh, about different identities. There's people who are in the public image who are doing a lot. Um, Prince William invited a lot of members of the LGBTQ plus community to Buckingham Palace to discuss their experiences. And that wasn't just white gay people. It was queer people from across the spectrum. There's loads of celebrities that are being very open about their uh, experience in sexuality. Demi Lovato being one of the more recent ones. Uh, Elliot Page, 
we have a pansexual MP for Oxford, uh, Leila Moran, is the MP for the Liberal Democrat MP for Oxford. Um, so there's a lot of awareness and representation out there. Uh, one thing I'd like to see change definitely is for Parliament to actually outlaw conversion therapy. It's not a common practice in the UK, but it does still happen. Unfortunately, particularly within religious communities. But that's changing as well. There's a lot of groups popping up that are aimed at being religious organisations for gay people. Um, we spoke to an organisation when I was at Network Rail, I've forgotten their name, but I will share it with the marketing team and they can share it, put it up with the podcast um, when I, I get it. But they were uh, an organisation to support Muslim uh, LGBTQ plus people, particularly in Glasgow. And there's other organisations, uh, the Metropolitan, uh, yeah, the Glasgow Metropolitan Church is a gay-friendly church. Uh, so there's moving even within religious communities to be more accepting and forward-thinking with different interpretations of the religious texts, um, which I think is a really positive step forward. And what a very positive note to end the podcast on. Well, you know, thank you so much, Alan. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. And I really do appreciate you taking the time out to share some of your experiences and knowledge with us today. This has been a very insightful discussion and I'm sure listeners will have a lot to take away from today's episode. So once again, thank you so much. And I guess I kind of should let you get back to work. Yes, uh, I should go and uh, earn a wage. Thanks so much for listening today. Wherever you're tuning in from, we'd love to hear from you. What were your learnings from today's conversation? Is there anything you'd like to add? Let us know using the hashtag TEG podcast on Twitter, or you can reach out to us anytime via contact at theequalgroup.com. And in the meantime, head on over to our website, theequalgroup.com, for more insights and articles around equality, diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Why not join our mailing list to be the first to get updates on all the latest EDI news, as well as our free monthly EDI training webinars. And finally, to stay tuned for more podcast interviews coming up soon, make sure you are following us at The Equal Group on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. That's it for today's episode. Until next time, everyone.